Christmas trees have long been a tradition for many Americans. While Germany gets most of the credit for starting uh, this long-lasting tradition, many historians link traces of this holiday tradition back to Egypt and even Rome. In the 1800s, German settlers brought this tradition to the United States, hence creating a whole new demand for the Christmas tree market. Joining us today from Pennsylvania is Michael Grega. Michael works for Helena, and he helps tree growers across Pennsylvania in growing the perfect Christmas tree that will stand in the homes across our country. He's going to share what it takes to grow the perfect Christmas tree for your home. Plus, we'll visit with Jody Lawrence and get the latest in commodity markets. Stay tuned for FieldLink. Joining us today from Pennsylvania is Michael Grega. Michael works for Helena, and he helps Christmas tree growers across Pennsylvania uh, grow the perfect Christmas tree that may stand in one of your homes across the country today. We're going to learn a little bit more about Christmas trees, and uh, Michael, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience and, and, and what you do at Helena to help growers grow Christmas trees. Well, hello, Bill. Glad to be on. Uh for as far as background, I've been actually dealing with Christmas trees uh, since I was in high school, helping out one of the local farms around here actually uh, is a wholesale producer of Christmas trees. And I started there, um, like I said, around 10 years ago. Um, and since then, I got in, moved in with Helena and uh, in terms of agronomy, uh, helping these growers grow nice trees and get them to people's homes, uh, make them look nice and make it uh, cost effective for the grower. Wow. So you did you uh, grow up there in Pennsylvania then? Yes, I grew up in uh, the town I currently live in. And um, there's actually about five Christmas trees farms that are local to the this area, um, this, this town, not just um, the surrounding area. And so it's a mainstay of the community here um and that's kind of where i got uh maybe the start with christmas trees but as well as other agriculture so michael tell us a little bit about uh about you you grew up there in pennsylvania and um did you go to school to learn a little bit more about christmas trees and study agronomy or agriculture i went to penn state uh for the bachelor's degree um with environmental resource management and soil science so is a more general outlook of uh, production and uh, ecosystems and things of that nature. Um, but yeah, lots of focus on uh, soils, getting them ready, and as well as uh, plant sciences, as well as in the agronomy club and things like that. So yeah, I went to school and learned even more at uh, through college, and then put that into into practice in the field. Awesome. So you mentioned there's about five, it sounds like sizable Christmas tree farms in the area that you work. And, and tell us a little bit about your branch. Uh, you're, you're in Mifflinville, Pennsylvania. Yes, Mifflinville. Um, there's, when I say five in where the area where I work, I more so mean five just in this little small town. Um, as far as Christmas trees that we serve in the branch, it's, oh, I I, the number, I don't even, I don't know. It's, it's probably in the hundreds. Um, I know P Pennsylvania is one of the largest Christmas tree producing states. I know that. Um, so we're working with a lot of growers out of the Mifflinville branch. Um, and I'm sure some of our other branches in Pennsylvania too. 
so 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 how long does it take Michael to to uh, produce I guess a quality Christmas tree? Um, on average, it's around seven years to produce a tree. Um, it's very variable from uh, depending on size. Uh, there's certain people like a small little tree, and other people like the tall ones if they have a big ceiling. But for like a six to seven foot tree, the average time's probably around seven years. Um, and that could also, de- that's with a lot of our, you know, agriculture practices and fertilizing and kind of make, making it as efficiently as possible uh, to get them. Because the least amount of years in production, the cheaper it is for the grower and ultimately cheaper for the consumer as well. But um, so anytime you can cut off a year with proper um, management, uh, it was, it's a big help towards the productivity. So you mentioned, uh, you know, certainly there's different customers, different uh, homeowners that have different needs for sizes of trees. But uh, what seems to be one of the more common ones that uh, you and your team get to work with and, you know, help those growers produce? The common size is probably like around that uh, anywhere from five to 10 feet. Um, but as far as varieties, the Fraser fir, um, cane, uh, Douglas, Concolor, very popular, and Blue Spruce. And they're wide-ranging in styles. The Fraser and the Canine are a little more upright. Uh, they're good for, they're upright and thinner, so they're better for small area situations. Um, the Blue Spruce, kind of, they're, like the name says, they're blue. They, people like them for the color. And another popular one would be Concolor because they have a little citrusy smell to them. And a lot of people really like that. Now, are those trees somewhat native to the Pennsylvania area, or did, are they imported, or, 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 or how do those trees evolve in your market? A lot of those are native to North America, um, Pennsylvania included. Specifically, I believe the Fraser fir is, I think, the main one of the most areas is North Carolina. Um, but they're definitely a. They're not necessarily too much of a import. Um, There are others uh, that are, um, like Norway spruce. It's not necessarily as common as a Christmas tree, but some people do use it. uh, But that's um, generally they're local and uh, from their natural habitat, native. So, Michael, as far as, I guess, a novice when it comes to trees and specifically Christmas trees, Help our listeners understand the process for growing uh, a quality Christmas tree. How are they planted? When are they planted? Are they planted by seed or uh, seedlings? Walk us through that whole whole journey. So a lot of times they'll start out in nurseries where they are planted. The seeds are planted. So very tiny seeds are planted very densely. Um, they are usually very small. Uh, area. We're not talking necessarily acres, or there, maybe totally there'd be acres, but it'd be a tinier uh, subplot of the field um, where they would have millions of trees, seedlings. That's usually done in the springtime, and that process takes about a year, maybe two, that they're in that uh, high-density setting. Then 
though typically then the tree that you cut your Christmas tree farm on buys it from the nursery. The nursery lifts them out of the soil and packages them to ship them to the what you'd call the Christmas tree farm. They then plant them that following spring, most likely, and then the, that's about when the seven years begins. A sec, like it's not usually it doesn't count that first year. Um, so then, the, once the tree is transplanted, typically it's in rows and blocks so that the tr- tractors or spray equipment can get around them so they're not necessarily acres and acres without any space um it's typically around a thousand trees per acre is the planting maybe 1200 um one and it's like six by six spacing so it would be six feet uh lengthwise and six feet uh width in the row to where the trees have space to grow and get larger so they don't choke each other out or otherwise the they'll be too spindly and they won't be full and you'll be able to see right through your Christmas tree. That's the kind of gist for getting it started. Wow. And then once they're started and, and going, what kind of fertility program do you, you and the rest of the Helena professionals use uh, there at your location to help, you know, enhance the growth of those trees? Not many people realize, but it does take a pretty decent fertility program to get these trees ready within that seven year time period. Uh, Typically, well, first thing, we will start off maybe with uh, lime with for pH uh, amendments. Each variety that I mentioned has different pH targets, uh, which is an interesting. Certain ones are pretty acidic down in the 5.5 five range, while others like it about 6.6. Six. So it's very um, variable in terms of the pH. But once we get that corrected, then you, in terms of fertility, uh, pretty much a decent nitrogen program with uh, about maybe over the course of the year, uh, maybe 75 to 100 pounds or more, depending on the size of the tree. When the tree's younger, they go with much, you know, a little, littler amount of fertility when the new growth's only putting on maybe three or four inches versus by the time the tree's about ready for harvest, it wants a lot more um, fertilizer to push it. P phosphorus is a key nutrient as well um, to in order to keep them established and going. They're not very good phosphorus feeders, so it's helpful to have phosphorus levels high, um, but you don't want to be out of balance. And then potassium, they also use up big time. Uh, calcium is important in terms of uh, needle retention, so that's big for towards the end of the growing season or the, the production time where nobody wants to buy a Christmas tree and have all the needles fall off immediately after they buy it. My, my wife doesn't like that when that happens, Michael, that's for sure. So. No, I, not many people do. Uh, <laughs> ideally, you want those needles to hold on there the whole time that tree's up and then people keep getting the, um, keep coming back. But in terms of Fertility, they're like I know for Helena, uh, Coron would be a big, big, op, big fit for Christmas trees in terms of specifically those ones that are close to harvest in order to get the color right right at the end. In case they're make them nice and green, everybody likes their green tree. If it's uh, Fraser or that, 
but that's big and in general uh you're usually those nitrogen applications i mentioned for those pounds are split a little bit in the spring and then some slow release later on and towards the summertime to keep them going but that's probably a long answer for the fertility could go into more detail if you like i potentially but uh michael how is your branch utilizing agri-intelligence to uh help christmas tree growers uh produce a more profitable tree. A lot of what our branch does, uh, maybe start with the soil sampling, a part of the agri-intelligence in terms of field mapping zones. We want to get those soil samples taken in order to make sure we can get the soil amended properly. Like I mentioned earlier about the pH being different recommendations for different varieties. So you want to make sure you have a good soil sampling program which where high ground fits in very nicely and in terms of the fields are usually pretty uh, narrow strips Um, so there could be variation on one end of the field versus the other which is so that's where a little the precision fits in if we can have different rates for different portions of the field to make sure everything's lined up with the pH as well as the fertilizer needs um, from end to end. If the field's long and narrow, the one end might be different than the other. What are some typical challenges that growers face while trying to grow Christmas trees in your market today? A lot of the challenges do come in terms of pests. There are a lot of, to get that perfect tree, there are a lot of pests that will get in the way of that um, from Weeds, weed control is key to make sure that what you're feeding that tree gets to it. And if there's too much weeds underneath the bottom, the bottom will get thin and it won't be as nice of a tree down towards all the way down. Also, just insects, mites, uh, and fungi uh, all provide challenges to the growers, which Helena has a great way of fitting in and helping them overcome some of those difficulties uh just going keeping a strong spray program running and making sure we scout the fields and make sure we're hitting them when we need to and not spraying when we don't is key um basically that integrated pest management that everybody talks about and making sure that the tree has everything it needs to succeed and not something isn't uh oh weevils are a main big problem which they like to climb to the top of the tree and basically penetrate the leader which is that top stem which everyone puts their star on would be the leader and it kills the tree from the top down those are massive problem once the leader's gone it sets the tree back most probably two or two years because then you have to basically prune the tree so that it can regrow straight. So having a good scouting program, or in our case, an inspects program is pretty critical uh, to stay on top of some of the pest management for, you know, this particular crop. Yes, that's exactly right. Lots of time in the field, helpful to actually making sure you're hitting those pests at the right time. And then making sure you're coming back in and getting them. Don't want to be building resistance. Uh, these are Many of these pests are 
many generations in a short period of time, and that's a perfect way to build resistance. So it's a lot of scouting is key if you want to really make everything perfect. Yeah. So, Michael, in your market, um, you mentioned there's just locally, just just around you, there's at least five large growers, and there's a whole bunch more in, that your branch services. But uh, how are those trees typically marketed? How, how do the, your customers market these particular trees? There's multiple outlets. Probably two would be the main way that it happens. One of the most fun and exciting way, more of the agritourism way would be choose and cut where you know general public comes on to the farm and walks the fields and chooses which which tree they like usually they bring the whole family it's really a, a fun time it's a tradition for a lot of families in the area where they'll take the family out and go walk through the fields pick take pictures everything like that and pick the tree uh, then it gets cut down, and then they take it home. That's a very big part of Pennsylvania's Christmas tree industry, specifically for the smaller growers. There's a lot of smaller growers who really rely on that, whereas some of the larger growers are more of the wholesale, where they'll take the tree, get it cut down, many trees, cut them, a lot of them down, and then ship out uh, tractor-trailer loads of them to surrounding urban areas, cities, New York or Philadelphia, places like that where people can go to lots and pick out which tree they like there. Well, it's definitely a wide variety of marketing and how those trees are marketed. And as you mentioned, there's that very intimate uh, hallmark almost experience where, you know, mom and dad uh, take the kids out in the car and strap it on just like. uh, Yeah, just like the Hallmark movies. Hallmark movies and Christmas Vacation was on top of my mind, actually. (laughs) But uh, absolutely. Top, chopping that tree down and heading out 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 uh, out in the country for the uh, afternoon and then taking it back home. Well, you know, statistically, there are close to 15,000 uh, tree farms, Christmas tree farms across the United States with over 100,000 people uh, that are employed full-time or part-time in this particular industry. So, you know, nationally, this is a really big industry. And, and, and Michael, as you pointed out, in Pennsylvania, this is huge. So, everybody. I mean, there's a lot of people involved in growing these trees. Yes, absolutely. Um, To focus on what you said, I know many people who are fully employed on Christmas tree farms uh, in my town, and it is a big part of the economy and agriculture as a whole, which is a lot of times overlooked. Uh, Most people don't necessarily think about it when they think about agriculture and think about Christmas trees or things like that. They think of either produce or corn and beans, but uh, this is a serious uh, agricultural player, and specifically in Pennsylvania, but I'm sure many other states as well. Um, and there's also other ways for tree production to for in agriculture, not necessarily just the Christmas tree, cut Christmas trees, but also landscape trees, which is a big portion of it, where ball and burlap it's called, where the tree gets dug out of the ground to be transplanted in someone's yard or at a construction site. That's potentially also an even bigger aspect of the 
Christmas tree agriculture production side, even though it's not quite a Christmas tree. But you, you bring up a great point, and I think that is a, a huge sector that you know a lot of us involved in agriculture kind of oversee sometimes because you know not everybody has. Christmas trees or landscaping trees uh, in their backyard. But uh, this is a huge industry. And, you know, when you step back and look at, I guess, in your market, Michael, would you say what percentage of all the trees grown in your specific market are dedicated to Christmas trees? And what percent uh, would go towards, you know, more of a landscaping situation? In terms of actual tree count, it's most likely maybe 25% for the cut Christmas trees. It's my best guess. I don't know this for a fact. Uh, that's just my best guess because there is a lot of trees that do go out for landscaping or these construction sites and more trailer loads of them. Uh, and they are, it's a big part of it. I would assume that, that that's a bigger percentage, um, which is something to be said because you know how many people get Christmas trees. But you see those tree lines along people's houses or just a couple trees in their yard, and those add up very quickly, especially with some uh, developments going in. Well, I think that's a pretty good statistic, you know, when you step back and think, uh, you know, some stats that I pulled together. It shows around 34 to 36 million Christmas trees are produced in the United States each year. And uh, if that's consuming about 25 percent in your market, that tells us the tree population, the tree production is really big uh, in Pennsylvania and probably a lot of other states as well. Yes, it's very interesting and definitely maybe lends into the the stat that I know about something like about for every one Christmas tree cut, there's three planted. So it's a very renewable and uh, long-term su- success based on that, uh, basically. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. You know, when we talk, to, talk about, and you know, the buzzword right now is sustainability and conservation. Um, there's a tremendous amount of good things around Christmas trees. Quite frankly, just the amount of carbon dioxide that's produced. Uh, statistics show that uh, about one million acres dedicated to Christmas tree farming today, each acre provides enough oxygen for 18 people. So uh, they're doing quite a great deed, I guess, for for all of us from a human uh, standpoint, uh, as far as the trees are concerned. And, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, who's known, you know, uh, as one of our great presidents and uh, conservationists, he, he had a conservation program where he wasn't too excited about Christmas trees because he thought it would devastate and re- remove all the trees from from the nation. But over time, he, he, he changed his tune a little bit and uh, realized that this is a great renewable resource if managed properly. And he really got behind uh, Christmas tree production later on in life uh, by uh, – enhancing some of the White House festivities at the White House when he was president. And his stories talk about how his son snuggled in Christmas trees later in life and into the White House, and Roosevelt really got behind it at that time. So a lot of fun history around Christmas trees in our country. Yeah, pretty interestingly, I believe the Christmas tree in the White House this year is actually from the county over from me in Pennsylvania. 
people can't quite remember the, the, their farm name is, but very com- very often the White House Christmas tree comes from this part of uh, Pennsylvania, pretty close. And it's I always find that very exciting and interesting. Um, but yeah, definitely very renewable, very eco-friendly. Um, the main competitor for these Christmas tree growers is the artificial tree. Um, I know that around the artificial trees, you, you know, usually made of plastic. I think something like 80% of them come from China. And there's just a lot to be said about the local, supporting the local farmers um, and just better, probably better for the environment versus the ones that don't decompose that are plastic. Versus, well, the, the Christmas tree would decompose. And I know there's recycling facilities and things of that nature, even to make the trees into mulch and to have them even have a, a second life use yeah you're 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 right about that and it's definitely just not the same is it i mean uh, there's a little more care involved you know as a consumer as a homeowner uh making sure that that tree's watered properly and you know i understand after a tree's cut um you know you've got about 30 days uh of you know you know, I, I don't want to call it life, but uh, 30 days for that thing to maintain some pretty good qualities for scent and keep those uh, uh, keep, keep everything going well. Um, do you have any tips for homeowners as it relates to Christmas trees once they're cut? Once they get into their home, I know warm water would be better than cold water. When you're watering the tree, it helps it float. It helps the trunk actually uptake that water and send it, let it flow through the tree a little bit easier. Just be at, stay after it. That's going to be your biggest helper. The more you, if it runs dry, it'll probably go downhill a lot faster. Even if you catch it and put more water in, keeping it, keeping it supplied will be helpful. Um, I know they have those to make it a little easier. And some people don't like crawling underneath it. They make funnels that nice and long, so you can kind of hide them in the back and just reach around and pour it in. Those are just user tips but i think the in general just keeping it ready with the water and that'll be the best way to best way to keep it keep it like you said not necessarily alive but in good shape for as long as possible right there's nothing better than that scent of a you know a fresh cut tree when you walk into a home you can always tell it's the holiday season that's for sure oh definitely Definitely. Very enjoyable. You know, uh, Christmas trees have been part of our history for many, many, many years. And one of the uh, most recognized Christmas tree out there is the one in New York City's Rockefeller Center. And it's a fun history piece here that uh, that tree, uh, that history goes back to 1931 when they were actually building Rockefeller Center. And, and a lot of the construction workers put a simple tree up in the middle of a, in, in this muddy construction site. And then fast forward two years after the Rockefeller Center was built, they started that tradition of uh, in 1933 of building or putting that large tree up there and decorating it. The first one was adorned with 700 lights um, in front of that old RCA building. And and that tradition still carries on. And, and, and what you know, Michael. What a lot of folks don't realize is that was a critical time in our country during the Great Depression, and that tree brought a lot of uh, hope and spirit uh, to to Americans across the country when they put that tree up. That's a very interesting. I did not know that that or that how it, that started and how the origin and yeah, that's a big part of a lot of people in the city there, New York City's 
Christmas experience. Or even I know some people being Pennsylvania stayed over do travel over there to look at the that tree lighting. Um so it is very interesting that that got started during that time. Um and you know during the depression like that uh hope would be a big thing with the the season of like this. So that's makes sense during the depression they were definitely looking for some hope and that's a nice little story I didn't know about. Michael, I want to thank you for joining us here today on FieldLink. And uh, as you kind of educate us a little bit more about not just Christmas tree production, but tree production as a whole, it's a big part of agriculture. It's a big part of our economy, specifically in the state of Pennsylvania and the Northeast. Um, and we really appreciate the, the joy uh, that you and your customers bring to, you know, many, many, many homes across our great nation this time of year. Thanks so much for having me on. Glad to hopefully give a little bit of insight at least into the inner workings of what actually goes on behind the scenes to get those trees ready for many people to have the presence underneath them coming pretty soon here. Joining us from Nashville is our guest analyst, Jody Lawrence. Jody, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Merry Christmas to everybody and happy holidays. Great time of the year. It is the season for sure, and uh, uh, lots of things happening in the grain markets across the, the U.S. and around the globe right now. Uh, Jody, let's uh, let's chat a little bit about some of the commodity markets. We've uh, kind of settled out a little bit here. Yeah, the market has started to slow down, and unfortunately, outside of beans, has uh, the gra- the grains have started to kind of develop into a little bit of a bearish trend, uh, but simply on demand. The dollar is still strong, even though it's fallen, and uh, our wheat is uh, still uh, overpriced for what Russia has, so we're not selling any wheat. And uh, the corn market with China not being involved in the corn market because of their zero COVID tolerance, even though they are trying to reopen some things, we're just not seeing enough demand for corn and wheat to be able to uh, keep it from kind of doing a seasonal slide into the into the end of the year. And on the demand side, we are starting to see bean demand pick up a little bit over the last week to 10 days from China as they uh, are trying to catch up on some back sales from when they were locked down uh, more extensively across the country in October and November. They are easing their COVID restrictions and their, uh, and their zero to- tolerance policy, but it's still... And, you know, probably at best, their uh, economy is working at about 75% rate. So we need China to get, the world needs China to get back uh, in good economic shape and get over the COVID hump that they've run into this time just simply for raw material uh, demand uh, since their economy is the largest user of raw materials in the world. Yeah, they've definitely been making some purchases across the globe on soybeans, specifically soybean meal. I know uh, Argentina had some pretty big sales of meal to them recently, as well as maybe uh, some other South uh, American uh, nations to China. Uh, as you mentioned, the U.S. dollar is still pretty pricey in that market to, uh, uh, from a global perspective. Yeah, it's, it's still trading at, at 105, and if you uh, if you look at it, you know, that's uh, it was up about 10 percent at one point. Now it's, you know, really over about 5 percent. But that's still uh, it, it trimmed some of the marginal 
uh, buyers that we have that they're going to start uh, or they're going to continue to find if supplies available at a cheaper currency. You bet. Uh, Jody, we touched a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the wheat supplies, uh, specifically in Russia. They had a heck of a great crop this year from from our understanding. Um they're just sitting there, though. They're still moving a lot of wheat across the globe uh, to to a lot of nations, uh, definitely impacting the U.S. wheat prices. Yes, it's and uh, all almost all the world demand has gone to uh, Russia and to the Ukraine because they are uh, they have an abundance of it and they uh, are offering it a discount to the rest of the world uh, as the humanitarian corridor remains open. Even though the war is beginning to escalate uh, more, you had an attack on a Russian air base inside of Russia, 300 miles from the Ukrainian border and only 150 miles from uh, from Moscow. And when I saw that, it was during when the markets were closed. I thought we'd certainly get a bounce out of it. That because you know, in February, March, that would have been something that moved the wheat price up 30, 40 cents. And the market has really is just begun to ignore all the war developments, which uh, is frustrating uh, when you, you know, when you see that that the price of wheat is is back 40, 50 cents below where it was pre-invasion. And uh, what we are seeing this week is we've had we did see the first decent bounce just from a fundamental standpoint as world wheat prices have started to firm which tells us that a lot of business is getting done and that stocks at some point Russia will run out. And, and there's always the conspiracy theory, and it's easy to find, to think this is accurate, that uh, how Russia had a record wheat crop was they went into Ukraine and stole it. Uh, so it's it, we'll see, and it may take till spring, summer of 23 to get an accurate count on how much wheat is really in the world. Jody, uh, while still staying in that region, uh, I've heard some reports recently that uh, in the Ukraine, uh, still up to maybe 60 plus percent of the corn crop still standing. Uh, and that really hasn't hit the marketplace yet. Uh, how will that impact global uh, supply as well as demand? Ukraine and Russia, they alternate in wheat between being the first and second largest exporter and Ukraine's further down the list for corn. But they are a significant amount, and that is frustrating when the market knows all of this, and it, but it is pricing like that corn is sitting in a bin ready to be put on a barge or uh, on a train to be exported. So the market is going to have to do some uh, you know, over the course when we get the January final USDA report uh, to to do a much better job of finding where all these stocks are, because you can't, uh, with everything that's gone on over there, the power outages, the shortage of materials, the logistics nightmares, think that they have a, a normal amount of anything to export when we start moving into 23. So still a lot of unknowns, but right now the market has completely discounted the war and the availability of uh Ukraine and Russian corn and wheat and sunflower oil and the other things that they export. 
And as we spin the globe and head to South America, uh, crops in Brazil look really good right now. Uh, things are progressing quite well. Uh, but right next door in Argentina, things not so well in that part of the region. Brazil's, uh, Brazil's crops look really good and they're on pace. We'll, find, we'll have a USDA report today that's likely to tell us uh, uh, they expect the uh, Brazilian bean crop to be in excess of uh, 6 billion bushels with Argentina's crop being uh, excess of 2 billion bushels. And when you add those together, you start to get uh, understand that if those two countries produce 8 billion bushels of beans in the U.S., which we had a pretty good year, uh, produced uh, a little over 4 billion bushels, we know that we're in their rearview mirror. But uh, weather in Brazil has been nearly ideal since the start of planting. Seasonal temperatures, plenty of rain right when they need it. Obviously, like any you know large growing area, their pockets were their problems. But all in all, Brazil's in really good shape. But the other side of the coin is Argentina is not in good shape, very dry. They're still stuck in their El Nino pattern or their La Nina pattern that they have been the past two growing seasons. And when you think about them being in their growing season, uh, think about Southern Hemisphere agriculture always being about six months behind us. So they are in or ahead of us, depending on how you look at it. Uh, they are in their May, late May, early June timeframe. And while it's not critical, if rain started to fall by the first of the year after Christmas, then uh, Argentina's crop could certainly benefit from that and have better potential. But right now, we are expecting to see Argentina's uh, expectations uh, start to be trimmed a little bit for both corn and beans, not to, uh, you know, not severely like they were last year in the very worst of their La Nina, their 2012 drought. But certainly you have a tale in South America of haves and have-nots that Brazil is on pace for two record crops while Argentina's crops are suffering. Meanwhile, back here in the United States, uh, we're, we're drought monitors still showing us a deficit, but we're starting to see some signs of some good things happening. Uh, wh what are you learning from the drought monitor, Jody? Well, the drought monitor is still, uh, in uh, when you take in the entire Corn Belt, still worse than it was at this time last year. Western Corn Belt is in the worst spot of it. Uh, they have been stuck in a really bad pattern over the last two, two and a half years with limited subsoil moisture. And I was just out there this week visiting with all those great people. And it was, uh, they've got some concerns, but understand that it's a long way until they get into the field in March, April, that uh, you know, five, six, seven inches of rain would certainly help. And then on the other side of that, they need uh, the Ogallala, uh, all of their aquifers for everybody uh, in the Western Corn Belt that is irrigating. They need snow and indications are getting better when you look at the West Coast and what's happening in the Rocky Mountains with snow that it should be a more active winter than we've seen. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hearing some good things out there. Yeah, and all that rain still needs to get to uh, into the Mississippi. It needs to get into the Missouri and all of the uh, all of the tributaries to get the river levels back up because the Mississippi is still, uh, depending on which 
week you look at it still at record low levels somewhere up and down. Yeah, definitely needs a recharge. We've been blessed here recently with some good rains throughout the Delta. Uh, hopefully going to eventually recharge that river to uh, start seeing some more barges moving up and down that river uh, for, for uh, logistical purposes. Um, hearing some good things out in California uh, in the Sierra Mountains, I heard a report uh, yesterday that the snowpack is now at 165% of uh, normal, which uh, I don't know what normal is, but 165 percent of normal of year to date, which is good news for that part of the world to recharge, hopefully recharge some of those rivers and streams and reservoirs for irrigation purposes out there. If things maintain uh, progress there throughout the rest of the winter, things could really turn around a little bit for that part of the world, and they certainly need it. Yeah, they certainly need it. And you you don't want to base a, a marketing plan or profitability on counting on bad weather uh, to, to sell uh, to sell your crop and to market your crop. Uh, but the reality of it is, if we go back into a neutral El Nino, La Nina situation and soil moisture, subsoil moisture, rain improves and the world ends up with bigger crops, bigger crops in the middle of a recession means lower prices. So that's something we're certainly looking at. And I wouldn't say we're concerned because it's just the normal cycle of uh, agriculture, uh, good years, bad years, but it's something right now as we head into prepay season that everybody has to sharpen their pencils to take advantage of the discounts and then look to see through their buyers if they have profitability that they can go ahead and lock in early because if everything goes well and the U.S. finally gets out of this pattern, uh, we're due for 180 plus corn crop and beans to set, you know, get back up towards that 52, 53 yield, and that will mean uh, lower prices in 23. So we've got to keep an eye on that. Jody, as we wrap up the new year, are there is there anything uh, that we as producers really need to be focusing on as we uh, get ready to flip that calendar? Well, sitting here uh, today, I'm looking at the price of diesel. Uh, the futures price in January has gotten all the way down to uh, under $2.90. And while that's not what you're clearly what you're not paying at the pump, it does show that uh, you've got a, a softening of energy prices, and that's come from a, a couple different things. Obviously, everybody's concerned about the usage around the world because of the recession, China in particular, but you are at levels that you should be able to hedge your diesel fuel for what you need for the winter, spring, and even into early summer because you've had a significant uh, almost a dollar fifty drop in diesel prices on the board uh, since the summer highs, and to, to take advantage of that, it, falling prices give you opportunities in multiple places, and this is one of them where you can hedge your diesel at a cost right now that uh, lower than most of twenty two, but uh, certainly at a much better price than we saw at the peak. Excellent. Well, Jody, I want to thank you for your time here, for joining us here on FieldLink as we get ready for the 2023 growing season. Uh, you have a great new year, and thanks again for joining us on FieldLink. Thank you, Bill, and uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to everybody listening. Thanks for joining us today here on FieldLink, and we wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and hopefully you get to enjoy your Pennsylvania cut Christmas tree this year. <laughs>